0: Welcome in to the Vanity Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today will be Mitch Light of The Athletic. This episode sponsored by the Well Coffee House, a Nashville-area coffee house that provides fresh roast coffee, along with house-made pastries, breakfast, and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area. Those are in Brentwood, Green Hills, downtown, and Bellevue. You can get more information at wellcoffeehouse.org. The Well Coffee House, where coffee changes lives. Our news is presented by Sutherland & Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, give Taylor or Russell a call. That number, 615-846-6200. They can help you with your rights if you have been hurt. Well, Vanderbilt falls at Mississippi State in men's basketball. Final score from Starkville on Saturday night. Is Mississippi State 80 Vanderbilt 72. The Commodores return home to play Kentucky on Tuesday evening. Our guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I have slept on Bowl and Branch sheets for years, and did not know what I was missing until I got them. Don't make the same mistake. These are fair trade certified, so they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you're not going to want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlingbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Mitch Light joins me. He is the sideline announcer for Vanderbilt football. He is also uh, the executive editor at the Athletic. I'm getting. I've been so used to saying other things for years now, Mitch. I don't have the title down yet. I'll let you correct me. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm not the
1: executive editor. I'm the managing
0: editor. for excuse me. Uh, but managing thank you, but, editor. Thank you. Are you. I was the
1: executive editor at, at Athlon Sports for a while. I'm the uh, managing editor for basically. I don't know if it's the state of Tennessee or Memphis and Nashville. I think it's more accurately. I'm the managing editor for the Memphis and Tennessee sites at The Athletic.
0: Well, we just hand out promotions here at the Vandy Sports Podcast. I think I've promoted myself a couple of times already.
1: You're the executive director of the podcast. How about that?
0: (laughs) I like the way you think. Yeah. Let's talk hoops. Okay. Vanderbilt is suddenly very, very competitive after suddenly being— very not competitive after Aaron E. Smith left. And you know, five games into the season without him, it just looked like they were going to get blown out every time. This is now four games in a row that not only have they snapped the losing streak, they played four teams that might all make the NCAA tournament pretty competitively. So suddenly uh, there's a ray of light here.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, this is all on a relative scale because we realize the difficulties the season the difficulty of the season and the talent level with the injuries and stuff. And uh, But you're right. There has been a, I don't know what you want to say, the light bulb turned on. But, uh, you know, after that South Carolina game, you know, I, I'd have to look at the whole schedule. But you could argue at Kentucky, Florida at home versus LSU and at Florida or at Mississippi State is going, well, then they go to, they host Kentucky, obviously, then at Florida, at Tennessee. So this is a tough stretch. But my point was going to be that's a, Difficult four-game stretch. Obviously, won the LSU game, was winning double digits Kentucky. You know, you know, Florida wasn't, you know, overly com- as competitive as maybe the final score indicated. Got down early and was kind of an uphill battle. But, I, you know, Mississippi State's a good team at home. And the way Vanderbilt kept battling back after a, a sort of a slow start and then took the lead and then got down 16, looked like it could have been a big blowout and came back and just, you know, The Mississippi State game is sort of a microcosm of of what we've seen since Aaron Neesmith went out or, you know, a a team that plays hard, plays relatively smart, but just lacking offensive weapons. I mean, you just looked around the floor sometimes and said they need a big shot here from the perimeter. Who's going to deliver if you're not getting a Max Evans otherworldly performance like we saw against LSU, which we saw in the first half of the Arkansas game? There's really not anyone that you can expect to get that from you know dylan desu has been interesting he has not been the shooter i thought he would be but every other game of every other part of his game in my opinion or has been better than i thought it would be um i thought jordan wright played a very you know his best game Edukeo Benna played well um so this, you know this, this continues to be a team that, that plays hard and, and appears to be well coached and well prepared and is kind of overachieving based on its talent i mean you, they, they dane bradshaw was uh, on the call, of the game Saturday, and they kept talking about a Mississippi State team with no no real weaknesses, you know, one through five. And you contrast that with Vanderbilt, and you know, one through five in the starting lineup. You know, Saban Lee is an, an above average SEC point guard, or SEC. Well, yeah, he's, I'd still call him a point guard, even though uh, um, Scottie Pippins, you know handles the ball more when they're both in the game. But with Cleavon Brown out, I don't, you know, if you're ranking Vanderbilt's other starters from a talent standpoint, they're they're near the bottom of the SEC. Where if you're ranking Mississippi State's, they're probably near the top.
0: Well, here's something that's interesting: Saban Lee's hit 96 foul shots. Scottie Pippen Jr. has hit 90. Saban's shooting 74%. Scottie's hitting 71.4. They're getting a lot of points from the foul line right now.
1: Which they yeah, which Vanderbilt needs to because they're not getting. Well, I guess they're probably for the season. They're still getting a decent amount of from three because they they shot the ball so well early in the season from three. But yeah, it's you know they they are getting to the line. Saban's always gotten to the line. Scottie Pippen, you know that that's that's a strength right now. I'd love to see you know next few years. I'm sure it'll continue to be or even more so. Uh, I'm looking up at uh, Ken Palm right now. Vanderbilt gets thirty four percent of its points from three-point land, which is 81st in the country, and again, this is the whole season, gets 21% of its points from the free-throw line, which is 47%. In conference games, Vanderbilt gets... 25% 25% of its points from the f- free throw line that's fourth in the conference and in only 44.9% from two point range which is 12th in the conference. So, um, not a lot of two pointers basically either, you know, free throws or threes uh, and you know I guess Aaron Nismith only played one conference game so these stats are the conference stats are more representative of what this team actually has been.
0: I know that it doesn't work this way for a bunch of reasons, one of which is because you get some players who get to develop and do some things because other guys are out, but I just can't help but wonder what this team would be right now. If Cleavon Brown and Aaron E Smith were playing, and I still don't think this is a postseason level team, maybe NIT if everything went right, but I'm confident that one thing it would be, would be really fun to watch.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I you know, the, Auburn game maybe wasn't, you know, Cleavon Brown didn't play, but uh, you're right. I, I think that it's it's fair to think what could have been as, you know, the, the team, because this wasn't a great team in the preseason when when it was completely, in the, you know, the first couple weeks of the season when it was completely healthy. But you would think in, with a new coach and a new system, it would continue to grow. And, and um, I think we can't minimize the, the uh, loss of Cleavon Brown and, and, you know, he's basically an afterthought now, like announcers don't even talk about him when, when they, when they do the games, like they, they, they mention Aaron Neesmith. So, uh, it's forced, you know, educate played well the other day, uh, you know, Vanderbilt has some role players that have played really well in spots, but it's just, they're just not there as far as a consistency standpoint. Um, you know, you, you can't expect Max Evans to shoot like he did. Obviously you can't expect, uh, Jordan Wright to give you, you know, 11 points in whatever minute stretch he did the other day. If these guys continue to develop, then, there, then there's some hope down the road. Um, so, yeah, like like you, like you started this segment with or this this podcast with, there's, there's at least some positive things to talk about uh, where when we did this two or three weeks ago, there really wasn't.
0: What I like is I feel like from a coaching standpoint, they are maximizing their opportunities. Okay, you can only make do with the talent at hand, but what they're doing is it seems like they're getting the ball to their two guards – Nee Smith and, or excuse me, Lee and Pippen, and really either getting out in transition or they're kind of clearing the floor and letting those guys operate. And they'll either sometimes get layups or get fouled or they'll get kickouts to shooters that are pretty open. Now, look, they cannot do anything about the fact that they just don't have really good shooters. You may catch one night where Dylan Dassault hits five or six threes and you pull an upset or Max Evans goes crazy like he did the other night. But I feel like, and maybe that's a product of teams not wanting or knowing that those guys are a threat to shoot. But I feel like however they arrive there, I feel like they get decent looks and have a pretty good plan in their offense.
1: Yeah, and I mean I thought that was evident in the LSU game. And, you know, LSU might not be the best defensive team in the league. You know, they gave up uh, 90 points. They scored 90 points two games in a row and lost. Um, but I, one, one thing after, you know, thinking about that game, I can't think of many two – Times where Vanderbilt took a bad shot in that game, you know, it it was forced into taking Sometimes they're forced into taking bad shots because they simply can't get a good shot or or they just, you know, uh, someone chooses to take a bad shot. I'll I'll go back to that. I, I don't think there's many chance times in the past even when they were struggling, when you'd say that was a bad shot, I think they're pretty disciplined. Like sometimes, and I'm kind of rambling here, sometimes they're forced to take bad shots because it's shot clock and they just can't get anything generated. But I think that's a good a good sign of a disciplined team that they're not just, you know, look and say, oh, that's a bad shot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I would agree, you know, the, I think I know I have a decent grasp on the game of basketball, but there's people that I know that, that know better than me that, that have complimented the way this team is coached.
0: Kentucky's on the horizon. That is a team that they have played really competitively in recent years, even last year as bad as they were. That's one where they had a shot to sneak a win. I don't know how you explain it, but their ability to play Kentucky closer than they should is something that's kind of piqued my interest for the game Tuesday night.
1: Yeah, was was it last year at home or two years ago at home though, where Kentucky just completely ran Vanderbilt out of the gym? It no, was that
0: like, was last year in the give up phase of the season.
1: Yeah, that was yeah. like a thirty point game. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the Kentucky game this year was really what started the the, the stretch where Vanderbilt's played a lot better. And um, yeah, I mean, I saw a decent amount of the Kentucky Tennessee game. I thought Kentucky played pretty well. They're getting some of their you know their role players to to, to play better in that game and. And you're going to have some some between Ashton Hagens and, and quickly and Saban Lee, you're going to have some quick, quick guards in that game. And Maxey's a good score. So, um, yeah, I think this is a, you know, a good time, I guess, for Vanderbilt to play in Kentucky. Just they recently played well on the road against Kentucky. And they're probably even though they lost Saturday night, they're probably playing with a decent amount of confidence. So, you know, I walked into that gym last Wednesday with my son, not expecting, you know, Vanderbilt to win and or really to, to keep it that competitive against an LSU team that was undefeated. So, uh, you know, that's Chris, that's why they play the games. What do you make of Jordan? Wright? I like Jordan. <laughs> Wright. I savvy is, is the word, you know, he, he doesn't look like he's the most athletic kid and he's not, but he, he, he gets his shots off. He's got a little floater. Um, he's obviously got to develop as a three-point as a uh, three point shooter. He's, you know, uh, I think they trust him defensively. It was interesting because he was playing a lot. And then he did not play much for a stretch there. And then I was listening to the LSU game, post-game, driving home. And Sackhouse just kind of – I, I don't know if he said it at the press conference because I wasn't there. But it's kind of a throwaway line. It's sort of like that tells you how, what kind of motivation the pine can be. So I don't know what it was if it was – work ethic or just not playing well they, they clearly benched him for a period of time and, and, and then he, he's played well the last two games so I, I think he is a guy that can kind of develop one of my friends texted me and said is it accurate or is it fair to throw out a Corey Smith comparison there and I said I don't you know Corey Smith was more of a tough guy he was a better three-point shooter I think early in his career but I guess body type and all that, that that's maybe maybe a comparison
0: I feel like Corey Smith is the comparison that everybody just falls back to for a Vanderbilt player when you don't know exactly what he is. Yeah, I will maintain Corey Smith is the best Vanderbilt player in
1: history, not to score a thousand points, right? Uh, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I mean, as far as long as I've been alive, maybe. Yeah, I think he's at nine, and I don't just mean because he can't. You know, he's the top score without a thousand points. You know, he's at nine something, nine, nine fifty or whatever it is. But yeah, uh, a, a good four year player who just kept getting big, better and better and made some big baskets in his career. So, I mean, if Jordan Wright can establish, can improve his shot, which there's no reason he shouldn't be a, you know, a, a mid thirties, three point shooter as his career develops. I think he'll be a very good, you know, player for very good role player for, for Vanderbilt over the next few years.
0: I'm interested to see what he does with his body. Because yeah. he's got that stocky build like Corey does, I and mean, he's not nearly as muscular. And I don't think Jordan is going to be a guy who's an explosive leaper or super quick or anything like that. But what he might be able to do is bulk up a little bit and just be that physical guy that Corey was.
1: Yeah, and and Stackhouse told me this over the summer that he had a, he was he had SEC strength, so. He might not look like he's got the best basketball body, but they, you know, he is a strong kid, evidently. So, um, I guess there's good, 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 a good base there.
0: You want to talk baseball? Sure. I know you're working on a story for the Athletic. I don't want to blow any of your content, but what have you got your eye on right now? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tease that right now because, so I,
1: I, I'm, uh, I haven't talked to Tim Corbin yet. I'm, uh, in the Athletic later this week, Wednesday or Thursday. Um, gonna have A, Q&A, pretty pretty lengthy uh q a with tim corbin just about the program and about the season so uh, i'll know more later in the week and hopefully uh you know people listening to this will, will take a look on the athletic and and, and subscribe you know joe Rexroads had some stuff about vanderbilt recently i'm gonna have some stuff uh some real fun stories i'm working on uh there so uh, i am intrigued you know i'm just looking to see sort of how like the, the lineup gets sorted out and and uh, you know i don't expect things to be settled but uh, you know anytime soon unlike last year you know last year was different most Tim Corbin teams even some of his better ones it took until midseason for things to get sorted uh, but you know how's it going to shake out I, I think I think the infield's pretty you know you might know more than me but it looks like Carter Young at shortstop Austin Martin at third Harrison Ray at um, second and and uh, Spencer Jones at first would you say right now
0: Well, I'm going to throw you a little curveball, and I'm going to throw one to you from the pitching side and one from the hitting side, although that's a bad analogy for hitting. But anyway, what I think could happen coming out of the weekend, because from my understanding, the question is, can Carter Young hit enough to play short? And right now it is sounding like the answer may be no. So, if that is the case, I think what they are going to do is move Austin Martin back to short, and Parker Nolan will be at third. Now, first is a different thing, because Dominic Keegan is a guy that they want to play first. I do not think he's going to be ready to start the season, so that is going to put Spencer Jones at first, and... Ty Duvall, here's another thing, Ty Duvall, I think he's going to start the season to catcher, but he may not. They like C.J. Rodriguez, but you got a whole host of parts there that are moving around based on that. Now, Harrison Ray at second seems to be the one that is set in stone, but depending on what they do with Jones and depending on what they do with Duvall, I think you could see C.J. Rodriguez either catch or D.H., I mean, there's a lot of parts right yeah. now that are dependent on another domino. Okay, well, I'll counter that, and this
1: is again no inside information, really. With the outfield, might that might be having some converted infielders out there, and and maybe outfield defense is a little bit of an issue. Do you throw? Can you can you live with Carter Young? And I'm just making this up, hitting two ten. If he's your best defensive shortstop, rather than take Martin off a third, which he played really well last year, moving him to short, which we're not sure about, and then putting a freshman at third. That seems like you're moving you're a lot of moving parts uh, to get one more bat in the lineup with such good pitching and maybe questionable outfield defense. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, well, okay, let's hit outfield for a minute, okay? Here's how I think they're going to line up right now. I think they will line up Cooper Davis in left. I think they will put take Colwick in center and Isaiah Thomas in right. Okay. So it seems to me like there is a lot of chatter that Young's bat, and I don't know what level it is. I'm not privy to the stats or whatever they see, but I think that it has reached the appropriate level of concern that that is a very real possibility. I'll just leave it at that. Okay.
1: that's. I mean, that's fair. It's just you, uh, they just have to make the decision, you know, Can they live with that? And, you know, um, previous Tim Corbin teams years ago that didn't have as many options lived with really good defensive players in some certain spots with low averages. But when you've got better options, it becomes a more difficult being a good word here, made a more difficult decision uh, because you do have, you know, well, I guess I guess Tate Colwick, who came in as a middle infielder, I guess he's just they've made that move to outfield that there's that ship has sailed.
0: Well, that's what's interesting to me, Mitch, because Cooper Davis has got really good speed. And usually you think you're fastest guy in center, right? And Isaiah Thomas is a kid that they've kind of comped Jaron Kendall very loosely. I think the skills are the same, and he was a kid that they thought could play center. Colwick came to them as a shortstop, and the thing with Tate Colwick is – he played quarterback, I believe, at Arlington High School in West Tennessee and was very good, and Tate played a lot of sports and I don't think really dedicated himself to baseball full-time. Now that that's what he's doing, it sounds like things have really taken off with his skills, and the fact that they apparently trust him in center and have those other two guys on the corner, to me, says a lot.
1: Yeah, you could. that could be right, and that could you know make my point you know, incorrect about questionable defense um, there because they wouldn't put him out there um, if, if, you know, over those other two guys if they didn't think he, he could play the position. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested to see. And, you know, the Dominic Keegan talk, you know, we heard that late last year that the, he was threatening to take over at first base at certain points last year. And he came in as a catcher that he'll hit. Um, so I I really think Harrison Wright at second base is is – and maybe, you know, I guess the two corner outfielders are, are secure, but there's not too many secure spots, uh, you know, three or four days before the season starts.
0: Well, I think that even if Colwick and Duval were opening day starters, which I think Duval could be, I'm pretty sure that Keegan will not be. I, I may have said Colwick there. I meant Keegan. Yeah. Anyway, I think even if those two guys were in the opening day lineup, I'm gonna guess there's like chance, 75% chance that whatever you see on opening day will not be whatever you see the final game of the season. A, because Tim is usually tinkering with stuff throughout the season to see what clicks. And sometimes you get something really late in the year, like the time they went down to Athens and it just clicked with Xander Wheel in a hurry. I think he got mad at Conrad Greger and just said, forget this, let's throw Xander out there and Xander hit. That's one way... The other way is they will tinker with things early season, give guys chances. Sometimes freshmen click that you don't expect to click. I think Brian Reynolds is an example that you and I both used before. So there are a lot of scenarios under which all that stuff could happen anyway. Throw in the scenario that they're in now, A, with injuries, B, with a lot of new faces. I think that that just really increases the chance that you will see a lot of combinations or at least several this year.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, and I, in fact, that's going to be one of my questions to Tim Corbin: Is when you when you when he's got a situation like this where so many kind of unclaimed spots, does he go into the weekend saying, "Okay, this is our lineup this weekend; we're going to play it out," or do you say we're going to, you know? And I don't know who, who's pitching for the opponent, righty, lefty. So I'm going to throw that out there. Do they say, "Okay, we're given." Colwick starting, um, you know, day one. Matt Hogan starting day two. So and so are they going to try and give as many at bats this weekend opportunities, or are they just going to say, okay, this is our starting lineup and, and and we're rolling with it until you prove that you 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 know someone else needs a chance there.
0: Yeah, well, it's going to be very interesting. I can't wait for the Michigan game just to see some of these guys. And speaking of the open weekend. I'm going to throw a prediction for number three starter at you that may surprise you. Ethan Smith.
1: Is this a, an educated guess? This is, is an this educated
0: guess. guess. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, in fact, that's another one of my questions. Does Does Hugh Fisher's absence affect Jake Eater's role in this team? Like n- nothing, you know, nothing that Jake has done well or not well. Do they feel like they need to let another established left in the pen? Is that are you predicting, do you think Ethan Smith goes for that reason or just because he's the third best pitcher?
0: Well, I think that is one of the primary drivers. Fisher's absence, the fact that Eater has done so well out of a bullpen that doesn't have lefties. I think that maybe Ethan is the better strike thrower of the two right now too. I may be putting words in somebody's mouth, but I think that's maybe something that's factored in a bit. Plus, look, Ethan Smith, man, last year when that kid pitched, he was dominant.
1: Yeah, most you know uh, you'd have to go back and look. I, I, he had a couple outings, maybe um, you know I can't remember specifically, but when he was on, he was on, and and um, you know we heard good things about him at this point last year, and he he was you know a, a, an immediate contributor. And, you know I think if if he does earn that spot, I can see him not giving it up for the next two years and being a really solid weekend starter.
0: Yeah, I and. In- Omaha last year, I think he was a little banged up, and that's why we didn't see him pitching in key spots. But he seemed to me to be one of those guys, like you saw it with Hayden Stone, you saw it with Kyle Wright, that sometimes freshmen emerge by the end of the year to earn trust. And I don't know if he was quite in that stratosphere, but it seemed to me as dominant as he had been when he had been on the hill when we last saw him, that he was sort of approaching that territory.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. And you mentioned Ethan, uh, Hayden Stone. And I think, he'll, you know, it's a shame what happened to that kid not to rehash, um, you know, past stories. But I, I I mean, I could say forgotten because people who remember that run. But, you know, he might go down as a forgotten Commodore because of you only really w- pitched effectively for one year. But he was as good as he misses m- more. He made more people look silly than I've, almost any pitcher Vanderbilt's ever had.
0: Yeah, he really did. that slider may have been the thing that did him in because that just puts so much wear and tear on your elbow.
1: Yeah, so obviously unfortunate what happened there, but uh he 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 was a major, major reason veteran won a national championship.
0: Well, the thing that makes the Smith move to the rotation, if that's what they end up doing, interesting, is he's a kid who was a draft eligible sophomore too.
1: And yeah, that's right. Forgot about that. So you know, Vanderbilt went, went several years without having any of those, and they're going to have three in a two year, at least three that I know about in a two year period. Then obviously Jack Leiter will be four in a three year period. Um, that, that might only be around for two years.
0: Well, and look at that rotation. Okay. Hickman is getting some first team All American honors. Kumar Rocker, we know what he is, and he's potentially one overall in 2021. Eater was getting some first round, late first round buzz. I don't know that we even know what Ethan Smith is if he's stretched out for a full weekend. But, I mean, I don't know. Just my eyes tell me I look at him. I think that's a guy that could be a first-rounder. I mean, it's crazy talent in that starting yeah. rotation. And, and, oh, by the way, Jack Leiter, a, right. a guy that everybody thinks will be mid-first round next year, 2021, another draft-eligible sophomore. I mean, that's what are we talking four first rounders we could see in starting roles? I mean, he's crazy. I don't know where to go with Ethan Smith yet because I hadn't seen that comp dropped on him. And I don't know what the scouts think once they dig in and look at secondary stuff and those sorts of things. It takes a more advanced eye than I've got. But I, when I watch him, it just kind of has that feel about it.
1: Yeah. And uh, I don't, you know, expect to get a the best answer from this because it's the type of question that coaches don't like to answer. But. I'm going to ask Tim Corbin and see what you think. Heading into the season, is this the best you felt about Vanderbilt starting pitching? Now, the 2017, you didn't know at that time that Mike Miner as a freshman was going to emerge. You know, there's certain things you just you, you don't know that are going to happen. So I'm not going to say this is going to be the best starters or it's not going to be. But I think at this time, you could argue this is the, the best shape that the, rotate, the weekend starters have been in uh, heading into a season.
0: I'm going to guess that if you asked him, he wouldn't take the bait. He'd him and Hall. Right. But I'm going to tell you based on what I see, I think it has to be. Because we haven't even mentioned Tyler Brown yet, who not only is a first-team All-American closer, but he's the kind of closer that could give you five innings if you had to get it. And not all closers are that way. Again, you've got Eater out of the bullpen. You have a couple of freshmen. It seems to me like they really like Doolin and Laboke. I think it's Laboki. So yeah. those are two other arms that will pitch. I understand they've got some other kids like McIlwain that would probably pitch for some other teams. It might not pitch as much for them this year. So it sounds to me we know about those top five or six arms and how electric those kids are, but it sounds to me like that got some depth too from some guys that maybe people don't know about yet because they're freshmen or perhaps even some – Guys that take a step up as sophomores. Yep, yep, agreed. So
1: you know, obviously this all play out, but it's uh, um, it's it's you know, right now four days before the opener. It's, it's looking like a staff, a weekend staff, or weekend pitching situation uh, that's in pretty good shape.
0: The other thing that will be interesting is Corbin has at times in his career played some small ball. Now I think is they've had better bats and. I think they've been more analytically driven. They've not done that. But I do wonder if they get in some games, because I just know they're going to go through some stretches where three and four runs may be tough to come by just with these new kids breaking in. I do wonder, philosophically, given what his arms are and given how green his bats are, how bad is going to play out? Yeah,
1: I was thinking about that, there, that this morning when I was coming up with my questions for, for Tim – is you know is it going to be you know last year was an anomaly in college baseball not just for Vanderbilt you just you don't have teams that hit that many home runs is you know sort of like the old to date both of us Earl Weaver just sit around and wait for a three-run homer and, and Vanderbilt delivered a lot last year well that's not going to be the case this year so will we see more base running will we see more bunting so I wouldn't be surprised if we did
0: now they led the country in home runs last year I'm pretty sure did they not I believe that's the case. Yeah, no, they played a lot more games, but they hit a lot yeah. of them too. And they're not in one of these bandbox ballparks like New Mexico State either, so. There is that. Let's get into the mailbag, which is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood. If you are looking for a one-stop shop to take care of your insurance needs, Josh has you covered. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or at facebook.com forward slash JD he is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about him here. Dusty Orleans says who are Vanderbilt's most likely wins against in men's basketball. Um, I presume he's saying, look ahead and predict where they could so come I can't from. LSU. <laughs> well, that that would seem to be a little bit of an easy answer. I okay. would expect a little they more from you.
1: I'd say they beat LSU and no, almost doubled their scoring from the previous game. Now, um, remaining schedule i mean georgia and missouri are both at home and both are struggling although missouri beat arkansas georgia's been a real disappointment i know they're young but they um they have what four or five top 100 players you know and obviously edwards but in addition they've got at least three or four other top 100 players on their team um and hammond's an, an older kid so I would say both of those games and then, you know, South Carolina's a good team, uh, in Van- completely manhandled Vanderbilt down there. But uh, of the three, you know, Kentucky's obviously going to be tough tomorrow night. But, you know, the three remaining home games, I think Vanderbilt's got a, got a shot uh, at those. I This is a – I tweeted this out yesterday. I'm going to see if I can find it. It's not a Vanderbilt stat, but it's kind of um, – Vanderbilt can relate because of uh, – you know, what's happened with injuries the last two years. Um, The nine schools that enrolled top 10 recruits this season, RJ Hampton didn't go to college, so he's the one missing there, are combined 45 and 49 in league play. Say that one more time. The nine schools that enrolled top 10 recruits this season are combined 45 and 49 in league play. Man. Like Georgia's with Edwards is two and whatever Washington has Washington actually has two, I think top 11 or 12. If, if, uh, McDaniel, Jaden McDaniels, it's not going to the top 10, that would make the stat even better or worse, you know, depending on your point of view, Washington's struggling. Uh, Kentucky and Duke are basically the only two teams that are doing really well. You know, uh, North Carolina's struggling. Some teams are around the 500 in league play. So that, uh, that, 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 that just jumped out to me. So I dove in and figured that out the other day.
0: College basketball is your thing above everything else. So you are uniquely suited, I think, to answer this question. You saw it last year. You saw Vanderbilt, Indiana, some teams like that take that form, the expectations. Is this just a trend or just a kind of a two-year blip? You think? Uh, what's your question again? Like guys uh, with in. Well,
1: basically, the stat you just cited, the teams oh, that are
0: yeah. taking that approach aren't doing so great. And what well, I want to know
1: is what do you think? That's a good question. I think there's some extenuating circumstances, you know, with, with, um, like North Carolina be, being injured. Um, I think it's some kids signing with non blue bloods, like Darius Garland signing with Vanderbilt and Washington signing Isaiah Stewart and, um, you know, some, some kids kind of taking flyers on, on, on schools like that. Um, but I, I think I, I would lean more towards trend than exception because, um, you know, there, there's, there's more balance, you know, all the cliches you want to throw out there, but, um, you know, I, 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 th- I don't think you'd ever, I don't think we'll see the top 10 recruits go combined, you know, under 500 like they are this year again, but I wouldn't be shocked if it's, if it's, more towards 500 than it is more towards you know the, the 75% or 80% win mark, if that makes sense.
0: Well, Georgia, speaking of them, their problem has been the road. They beat Memphis away, which now doesn't look like such a right. great accomplishment, but they've lost all the other ones. Some of them they've got blown out. Now, they have been closer lately, although, well, I mean, I say they, they were within three points of Missouri, but that's also one where they blew a 20-point second-half lead. They lost by six in Florida. They were up by 20 at Florida and lost that. Yeah, so big issues for them on the road. Yeah. So I have to think that looking at the schedule for Vanderbilt, I'm going to pull this up here. Okay, Kentucky Tuesday, I would not totally count them out, although it seems like Kentucky, A, they're coming off one of those games where they won on the road at Tennessee, which is a place they would lost four in a row B, that's kind of one of those games where I think maybe he got their attention a little bit, he being John Calipari, because they had Johnny Juzang come off the bench and get 13 for them. He's not one of their premier guys. They had another freshman that came off the bench and got nine boards. So that was one of those where they won, and they had some guys who usually don't play prominent roles, play prominent roles, and maybe that's potentially a bad scenario for Vandy on Tuesday because maybe that's one of those he got their attention with that one sort of things.
1: Yeah, they just they have got good size. I mean, Vanderbilt's I, I going to really struggle to slow down Nick Richards inside.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And you look, okay, so then it's go to Florida, go to Tennessee. I don't feel great about either of those. Though Tennessee shoots the ball so poorly you just never know. George right. at home, Missouri at home, I have to think... Well, I'm looking at Ken Palm. Ken Palm gives him a 43% chance against Georgia here and a 50% chance against Missouri. So those two are very winnable. Ole Miss, you started to look at and say that one might be winnable, but then Ole Miss gets some confidence this weekend. Alabama on the road, I don't see that as likely. South Carolina here, again, one that I think we circled some time back as one that they might be able to win, but now Carolina's playing – Better, uh, beat Arkansas on the road a couple of games ago. So I don't know about that one either. But I do think that the Missouri-Georgia stretch would seem to represent their best chances. Would agree, 100%. VU Wars says, with the recent run of much more competitively played games, do you think it is now likely they win at least one more SEC game next year? So this rehashes the stuff that just talked about. But basically, do you... Uh, you
1: know, yes. we, yeah, we, we both, I think we
0: both not, think they win at yeah. least one more.
1: Yeah, I'd be very surprised if Vanderbilt did not win at least one more game.
0: Okay, also, can you think of other coaches who are very clearly good at player development and motivation like Stackhouse has demonstrated so far? If so, how does Stackhouse compare to them?
1: Yeah, that's a very, I mean, it's a good, not a bad question, just very difficult to answer. Um, you know, Stackhouse has been at Vanderbilt for half a year. I mean, You take a look at a guy like Chris Beard at Texas Tech is, you know, you know, they've recruited better, but what he took over and got them to an elite eight and a national championship game, he's regarded as a great motivator, great talent evaluator and great, you know, developer. There's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good coaches out there that are good, uh, good at developing talent. Um, but you know, it, again, it's hard to answer that because the sample size with, with Stackhouse just isn't great right now.
0: Well, he is a little bit of a different animal because I think that some of the coaches that have been in positions sort of like him, you think of Penny Hardaway and Juwan Howard, and those are guys that are putting their bread or, I guess, putting their chips on being able to recruit and get talent and five-star type kids. Jerry is doing really the complete opposite with player development and trying to work with some lower-level kids And, again, I think that he's done a great job on the development end. I also think that the recruiting criticism is fair. But I will say in their defense a little bit, and I I say defense, I still think that at Vanderbilt you have to turn over all the rocks and see what takes. I do think a lot of what they want to do hinges on getting transfers. Now, this is where I think the philosophy is a little bit coherent. With transfers is a shorter recruiting cycle. So yeah. you can maybe get those players a little bit easier without the investment of time that you have with the high school kids. You now, the problem is that short recruiting cycle is the same for everybody.
1: Right, right. And, you know, Vanderbilt's had, you know, a lot of programs have had good success with, with transfers. Vanderbilt's had, you know, dating back to when I was in school with Bruce Elder and Chris Lawson, you know, you've had a lot of success. And not to get too philosophical, I mean, but sometimes you you, you get – so a more mature kid who might pick another school out of high school for, for different reasons. And they're in college a couple years and they realize that for whatever reason they, they want to try and go to the best school possible. So, you know, Vanderbilt's gotten some, some kids like that who have uh, transferred for that reason. So, um, and, and I'm not, you know, I've heard all the criticisms. I don't follow recruiting that closely. I'm mean, I follow who Vanderbilt's recruiting, but I don't follow on a national scale that closely. Um, and I, I, I get, all of the recruiting criticisms of, and all this stuff, but we also have to keep in mind that the staff is recruiting off of an 0-16 SEC, 0-18 SEC season last year, and that's not a great place to start, um, you know, so so up against it to begin with. So, you know, we'll see. Obviously, it's all about players. I'm all for player development and, and all that stuff, but, you know, you, you got to have players.
0: Well, you know, another thing you could use if that's what they're going to do, they need to get somebody who's really skilled in knowing what buttons to push with the NCA to get kids available immediately.
1: Yeah, that's that's another thing that might, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. It'll be coming down the pike in, in, in a few years, probably. Um, but yeah, that 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 will that's another topic for a conversation for another time uh, if that gets enacted.
0: Well, and I think what you're referring to, in case the audience has missed it, is the one-time transfer exemption, which I caught a little bit of last week, but frankly was dialed into plenty of stuff on this own beat, so I don't really know where that stands. I just well, know the that big, it came the big, up.
1: It made headlines because the Big Ten is pushing for it. The Big Ten athletic directors are for it. That doesn't mean it's imminent. That doesn't mean it's going to happen in a year or two. It's a sign that the ball is rolling in that direction, but it's, it's, you know, I think people got a little carried away with the headlines.
0: Tell me if you think this is fair. Nope, I don't. Okay, great. Then podcast okay. over. Where can we yeah. find you? No, seriously, okay. the the 30,000-foot explanation for transfers is basically, do you have dirt on the guy where it came from? In other words, if your transfer from School X uh, comes to you and School X has done something dirty, run a kid off, had a handler, whatever, in the recruiting then that's when those schools get exemptions. And so if you just transfer out and you don't have a backstory to it, that's interesting to somebody, then those are the kids that don't get to play. Is that a fair description of how it works right now?
1: Um, not really. I mean, there's so many, there's so few kids that get immediate eligibility that, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's been extreme cases, um, you know, football's, made headlines with you know Justin Fields getting eligible immediately from Georgia, from Georgia Ohio State but there's not many basketball kids I'm trying to think off the top of my head that have been eligible immediately in this past cycle that I can remember.
0: Mitch we covered a lot of ground I know I've got to run in a minute anything that we didn't get to that is worthy of discussion today?
1: Uh not really um like you said, we talked a lot of stuff, um, and I'll just plug the uh, the stuff we've got coming to the Athletic again. Uh, um, Q&A with Tim Corbin it should be up Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, in the next coming weeks, I'll talk about my next little project that I think everyone will enjoy that I've been working on for the past few weeks. Uh, so you can check uh, that work out at the Athletic. Joe Rex wrote a good column post, uh, post-LSU game uh, last week, so uh, there, there's definitely some stuff on the site about Vanderbilt.
0: Well, I think if I hit all the topics that you feel are worth talking about, then that self-promotion I was going to give myself is probably deserved. Yes, go ahead. Get the business cards printed. I've got your blessing. Hey, Mitch, seriously, thank you for joining us. Tell people where to find your stuff, your Twitter handle, and all those things.
1: Okay. Well, Twitter handle's uh, at Mitch Light. Very simple there. So, uh, and like I said, working some stuff for the athletic, and uh, and that's that's basically
0: it. He is Mitch Light. I'm Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We appreciate you listening, and we will have more episodes coming your way later in the